so I'm recording this like I always do because you know and then I'm just gonna record the full version later if any of you guys want to go back and listen to it feel free if not fine you know <laughs> but you know we're continuing our series in first Peter and this is ironically probably the most important lesson in the entire series <laughs> because it sets the tone for the rest of the book but you guys are gonna get the gist of it and you're gonna get the gist of it really quickly so it's first Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 and this is where Peter really talks about the heart of the book this is where Peter starts off the rest of what he's talking about and like I told you guys first Peter is a book about living like a Christian so I want to ask you what are ways that people are typically categorized like if you wanted to put people into groups how would you do it any guesses Christians and non-Christians. Got to be careful about that. Okay, why? Because I feel like if people get left out of one group, they'll feel it's culturally inappropriate yeah. to. Yeah. Sure, groups can be used to exclude people. Yeah. So, what are some other ways that we categorize people? How do we put people in groups? Gender. Gender is one. Race. Race. Intelligence. <laughs> Intelligence is one of them. So we have these different ways that we categorize people, and do you know what the main the main way that the Bible categorizes people? Believers and believers. Christians and non-Christians. Believers and non-believers. That's right. A lot, of the, a lot of the categories that we have are superficial. Race, when it comes down to it, does not matter. There are people that want to make race the most important thing. Political affiliation, when it comes down to it, does not matter. There are people that want to make it the most important thing. What country you're from, where you grew up, how much money you have, what class you're in. All of these things are things that we use to categorize people. And then when it comes right down to it, it does not matter. When you die and you stand before God, he's not going to ask you what's in your bank account. He's not going to ask you which flag you saluted. He doesn't care. He's going to ask you, do you know Jesus? Right? And so in this chapter, Peter starts by categorizing the entire world into those two groups. So there are Christians and there are non-Christians. So let's talk about Christians. What makes you a Christian? In you know, verse 1 it says, So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he starts and he's comparing the word of God, the Bible, to milk. And when he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, I want to ask you guys something. If you eat something and it's just really, really good, you take that first bite and it's amazing. Like we're all eating ice cream right now. You take that first bite and it's amazing. What do you immediately do? Eat more. Another eat more. Another bite. That's right. And so the thing is, what do you do if you eat something and it's just disgusting? You eat something and it's super bitter. It's rotten. Spit what do you do? You spit it out. Keep eating. <laughs> you keep. Uh, you can tell who's a health nut. So. Well, maybe it's out, you feel out of obligation. Out of obligation. So there are people who can force it down even if they don't want to. But when Peter is talking about this, he's saying, if indeed you have tasted the true word. For a Christian, we have a taste for the Bible. If you are a Christian, you have a taste for the Bible. And this is something that we've talked about before. But how much do you read the Bible, right? And if... <laughs> but if you're a Christian, you're going to want to have the Bible. Which, an example that I hear about this. Imagine that you have a pig, and there's like a trash can. And the pig's coming on up, and it goes to the trash can, and there's like all this muck in it. Is the pig going to eat that muck? Yeah. Yes. That's a fat yes. Pigs don't care at all what they're eating. But let's just say for a moment that this pig is eating that muck and that trash. And then God snaps his fingers and magically turns that pig into a human being. What's immediately going to happen? 
he's gonna keep eating. <laughs> so he's obviously not gonna keep eating. He's gonna spit out what he has eaten. LOL. Okay, whatever. So if he turns a pig into a person, he's gonna spit out what he was eating. He's not gonna want it anymore. He's gonna start trying to eat human food, right? When you're a Christian, it's the exact same thing that happens to you. Before you were a Christian, you had a taste for the muck and the filth of the world, but when you get turned into a person, when you get turned into a Christian, what you actually want is the word. But also, he's talking about so that you can grow. Imagine a kid that never eats. What's gonna happen to that kid? He's gonna die. He's gonna die. What's gonna, what's gonna happen before he dies? He's gonna starve. He's gonna starve. That's right. You know, you can see the bones popping out and you see the skin rotting away. And when we talk about spiritual growth, when Peter's talking about growing, he's saying that you need to have the milk so that you can grow. You know, have you ever seen that someone that works out and they pump iron, they've done their entire 40 minute workout, what do they do immediately afterward? Hydrate. They hydrate and they drink protein. They get their protein in their system. Now what would happen if you work out super hard, you completely break your body down and you don't eat? You're gonna hurt yourself. You're gonna hurt yourself. Instead of getting stronger, your body actually gets weaker. And the thing is that there are other things that you do other than reading the Bible to grow. You pray, you live in the world. We've talked about last week how trials make you stronger. But if you're not reading the Bible, those things don't make you stronger. They break you down because the Bible is like food and nothing else matters if you're not reading the Bible. Like if you're not reading the Bible, you're not growing. If you're going to church, if you're serving, if you're praying, if you're not reading the Bible, those things are not helping you. You're not growing because you don't know how to pray. You don't know how to serve. You don't know how to think about trials. And when you're thinking about spiritual growth, you need to read the Bible. It's important. So he goes on, he says, as you have come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, um, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like stones who are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in the scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so this is where he's talking about like your internal heart orientation. You're oriented towards Jesus. You love Jesus. And this is the internal reality that makes someone a Christian. This is what defines a Christian. It's like, what is your relationship with Jesus? There's plenty of people that are quote unquote righteous, but that's not going to matter. There's all kinds of fake righteousness that we have and we see in the world. And that's not going to save you. What's going to save you is Jesus. And what defines a Christian is their relationship with Jesus. So do you love Jesus? And if you love Jesus, do you read the Bible? Like one of the things that you can really do to evaluate your salvation and growth, do I want to read the Bible? Do I seek it out? If you don't, you have a question to ask. But then we go on. So the first thing is that we learned that Christians pursue God. But there's another group. In verse 7 it says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejection had rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word that as they were destined to do. So we see that non-Christians reject God. And again, these are the two categories. There are people who will say, oh, I'm just indifferent. I haven't picked one side or the other, right? Those don't exist. There are people who think that, there are people who will say that, but there are people who love Jesus and there are people who hate Jesus. And Jesus actually says that. In Matthew, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So when it comes down to the end, people who stood in the middle, people who never made a choice, they did make their choice. And they chose not Jesus. And that's the internal, that's the orientation of a non-Christian. That's what defines a non-Christian. But he says that like the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And they talked about how it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's, that is like echoed in other places. In 1 Corinthians 1, 
Paul says, For Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Which, we've seen that. We've seen people who say, oh, if God is real, he needs to prove it. If God is real, then why doesn't this make sense to me? And they have all of these arguments and all of these intellectual things that they try to justify their rejection. But it talks about how Christ is, you know, the Jews want signs, the Greeks want wisdom. But the thing is, people will say that. It's not actually true. For example, in the book of John, you guys remember when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? That story, he says, Lazarus, come out, and he comes out. So after that happens, after Jesus raises a person from the dead, which is like the ultimate sign, he does this in front of the Jews. And let's look at the response. In John chapter 11, verses 45 to 48, and then verse 53, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what they did, believed in him. So there are some people that see Jesus raise a man from the dead, and their response is to believe. But there are other people who went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So the Pharisees, like, there are some Jews that they see Jesus raise a person from the dead, and they believe in him. And there are other people, they see Jesus raise someone from the dead, and they go tattle on him to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are like, well, he's clearly doing miracles. He's clearly raising people from the dead. A noteworthy sign has taken place. Let's kill him. And that's their response. The same sign happened, but there were two completely different responses. And the thing that was different was not the sign. And so the thing is, there are people who will demand signs. There are people who say, oh, prove it. Even if you prove it, it wouldn't matter. Because when people reject Jesus, it's not that they don't have the information necessary. It's that they don't have a taste for him. The same way that when we taste the word, we want more of it because we're Christians. When a non-Christian tastes the word, it's disgusting to him. It's the same thing as the difference between a man and a pig. It's the taste buds. Christians don't want Jesus. It's not that they can't believe him. It's not that he doesn't make sense. It's that they don't want him. It's an internal heart attitude. And so the world is divided into these two groups. There are Christians and there are non-Christians. So how do these groups relate? Well, the answer is that Christians evangelize non-Christians. You guys have a role. I said that this section is setting the tone for the entire rest of the book. And Peter is saying, you as Christians are living in a world of non-Christians. How are you supposed to relate to them? Do you go off in a house somewhere and you isolate yourself from all of the non-Christians, try to get as far away as possible? Yes. Do you go and you try to kill all the non-Christians? Do we go tribalism? Do we try to like eradicate the non-believers, you know, like Muslims and Catholics? Is that how we go about it? No. And Peter says that because in verse nine, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so he says, he am pulling you out as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so one of the things that we need to remember, oh my goodness, I was on a website one time and there was this guy and he was talking about, you know, sinners burning in hell. And he was talking about all the different people that quote, God hates, quote unquote. And he was just ripping and ripping and ripping. And he's demonstrating clear hatred towards people that he thinks aren't saved. And that is not at all the attitude that we're supposed to have towards non-Christians. Because notice he says, him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Did any of us start as Christians? What did we start as? Unbelievers, Unbelievers non-Christians. That's right. We started hating God. We were the pig who was eating the garbage. We were the person who hated God. We were the person who could not do it. But God changed us. God snapped his fingers and turned us into a pig. Or sorry, turned us into a person from a pig. We are pigs now. LOL. So the thing is that we've seen the goodness of God. God has saved us. God has transformed us. And he leaves us in the world. He doesn't just beam us up into heaven. He leaves us in the world so that we can talk to people. So that we can evangelize people. And last week... I talked about one of the reasons it's so important for us to live righteously is because we represent God, right? And Peter actually makes that argument as well. He says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Paul's saying, in the very beginning of the chapter, he's saying, be righteous, grow in righteousness as a Christian because you've been saved by God. And then in the end, he says, be righteous, grow in righteousness, be righteous so that you can evangelize people. You know, I was talking to Carlos, which is my sister's boyfriend, and we were talking about his conversion. He grew up Catholic. And one of the things that caused him to convert is he said he was looking around at all of these people in the Catholic Church, and none of them actually lived differently. You know, he looked around at all these people in the Catholic Church and none of them were genuinely different. None of them were genuinely righteous. He saw a bunch of people who didn't care about their religion, who lived like everyone else. But then he said, you know, as he went into an evangelical church, as he went into a Christian church and he was surrounded by Christians, he said that he saw a difference there. That he had been around all these people who claimed to know Jesus and then they didn't live any differently. But then he was around a bunch of people who they claimed to know Jesus and they lived differently. And that was the thing that led to his conversion, that he saw that and it it was attractive to him. He was like, okay, these people actually have what they claim to have. And so when you are acting in a certain way, you're demonstrating who God is. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And this is Peter speaking of himself and the apostles and saying we are ambassadors. And the thing is, all of us have the same responsibility. All of us are Christians, little Christs. We bear the name of God. We bring it into the world. And we are supposed to represent God to people. We are supposed to give the truth of God to people. And we are supposed to do that through our words and through our actions. Like I've ever said, someone actions speak louder than words. You know, you're saying all these specific things, but your actions are calling you a liar. And the thing is, we should never be that kind of person. As Christians, we've been changed. We have a desire for the word of God. We recognize that Christians are people who have been changed from non-Christians, that non-Christians are people who reject the word, not because they can't tell, not because it's not true, not because it's not clear to them, but because they don't want it, because it's disgusting to them. And we share the gospel with them and we do it in prayer because we love them. Because they, they are just like we were. None of us started as Christians. God saved us. And as a result, we should be wanting God to save other people who are just like us. And we are praying that God would change them like he changed us. And part of how he does that is by having them recognize our good works and what we say. So be motivated by that. Be motivated to live righteously. Be motivated to live the way that God wants you to live. Because you love God, because you love what he's given you, but also because you care about the people watching. And that sets the tone for the entire rest of the book. The rest of the book of 1 Peter is specific ways that you live to demonstrate the holiness of God. So with that, I'm going to bow our heads, we're going to close our eyes, and we're going to talk about it a bit. 
Lord, thank you that you've changed us. Thank you that you didn't leave us as pigs with a taste for garbage, but that you've changed us into people with a desire for the good milk of your word. I pray that you would help us to recognize that spiritual growth is found in your word, that you would give us a desire to get closer to you, but also that we would have a larger understanding of our purpose in the world. We aren't here so that we can be righteous. We aren't here so that we can feel better about ourselves. We aren't here to judge the people who, quote, didn't make the right choice or weren't smart enough to know. We are here for one reason, and that one reason is to evangelize. You'll make us perfect eventually. You'll give us full knowledge eventually. And Lord, there are things that are important that we do, but we are in the world so that we can evangelize it. And I pray that you would give us a heart for that, that you would help us to want to have the salvation of our friends, have the salvation of our families, and to work for that both in our words and also in our deeds. And I pray these things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. Amen.